I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. As we continue our series in the life of Moses, I'll be reading from Exodus 2, verses 11 through 25. I encourage you to follow along with me as I read. Beginning in verse 11. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? He asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it you have revealed yourself and your glory to us. You have shown us your plan of salvation. We thank you that you send your spirit to open our eyes and our hearts to understand it. And we pray that you would do that this evening that you would be the God who works through the preaching of his word to bring about the salvation of your people and to bring glory to your name. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our risen Savior and Lord. Amen. Well, as the youth pastor, one of my favorite things to do is to go on the annual fall retreat and spend time with the students from our church and the friends that they bring along with them. And it's every November, right before Thanksgiving. And this past year, the theme of our fall retreat was Heroes. And we began that weekend with our first session asking the question, Who needs a hero? And as we thought about that, I started it out by showing a clip from one of the original superhero movies, one of the original Superman movies. And in that clip, it's something that I saw in the theaters probably when I was about eight or nine or so. And it's a it's a clip that has stuck vividly in my mind ever since then. In this scene, Superman, as his alter ego Clark Kent, 
the photographer for the newspaper, is at Niagara Falls with Lois Lane. And they're walking around the falls, and as they're walking and talking, you see a boy in the background. And this little boy, maybe 10 years old at the most, has climbed over the railing so that he's now on the wrong side of the railing. And there's nothing between him and the falls behind him. And as he's standing there behind the railing, he starts to play a little game where he's holding the railing with both hands, and then he'll let go and fall back and reach out and grab it with one hand. And then he'll let go and reach out and grab it with the other hand. And you can guess what's going to happen. One time he reaches out, and he doesn't quite catch it. And so he plummets off the cliff and heads down towards the falls. And it's an incredible scene as you see this young child crying out for help, and his arms are spread out, and he's flying down in midair, and the, the majestic, powerful falls are in the background behind him. And I stopped the clip right there in that picture, and I said to the kids, what does that boy need right now? And the answer was obvious. He needs a hero. He needs somebody to come and rescue him. And tonight, as we look at Exodus chapter 2, we see that Moses is in a very similar situation. Because here we have the Israelites. We have God's people who are in bondage and in slavery, and they need to be rescued. They need a hero to come save them. And Moses is going to try to be Superman. But it's not going to work out quite the way he planned. As we look at that, this uh, page from the life of Moses this evening, we're going to look at three things. First of all, we'll see the sin of Moses. And then from there, we see the school of grace at Midian. And finally, we see the salvation of God. So it doesn't start out too good, but it has a great ending. So first of all, we want to look at the sin of Moses. And the sin of Moses here was, it was really twofold. The first thing that Moses did wrong was he took matters into his own hands. And it wasn't the right time, and it wasn't the right way. See, Moses was, it's as if he jumped over the railing to save the boy before he had learned how to fly. Look at the first couple verses here from, from uh, verse 11 of chapter 2. As you look over that, Moses sees his people. He goes out to visit them. He sees the Egyptian beating the Hebrew. And he wants to intervene. But what is absent from here? What is noticeably absent? You don't have any record of Moses praying or seeking the guidance of the Lord. There's no record of an angel of the Lord coming and visiting Moses and telling him to do this. There's no vision. There's no dream. There's no burning bush yet. This was Moses' idea. It was his plan, his timing. It wasn't the timing of God. Not only was it not the right time, but it wasn't the right way. And we can't be too hard on Moses. We do want to recognize that Moses' motive may have had some pureness to it. He was concerned about justice. He was concerned about the people of God. But the way he went about it was all wrong. See, Moses murdered the Egyptian. He took matters into his own hands. He was trying to be God. He was trying to be in control. And whenever we do that, the result is disastrous. And we try to do that in many different ways in our own lives today. You know, many parents struggle with the choices that their children make. And they're not 
going in the direction that they want them to go. And sometimes in dealing with their children, their children can frustrate them so much that they just want to lash out at them and they yell out them and yell at them in anger and try to control them and force them to do what they want them to do. Many times in marriages, one of the spouses is not happy with how things are going. And they'll put all the blame on the other one and try to manipulate them and control them and force them to change. And it's not God's way. Sometimes, maybe you know somebody who's tired of waiting for Mr. or Mrs. Wright. And so they want to take matters into their own hands. And maybe they'll enter into a relationship that they know is not pleasing to the Lord. Maybe they'll even go as far as living together or maybe even push into a marriage that they know is not honoring to the Lord. And it's not God's way. This can, even, this can even happen in areas of ministry. You know, your heart is pure. You want to serve the Lord. You want to move forward in ways to serve Him. And yet, the door doesn't seem to be open. But you push forward and you get involved in something that's not the right time and not the right way. It can work the other way, too. Sometimes it is the right time and it is the right way, but you don't want to get involved. And so you say no to the Lord. See, when we try to do things in our own way, in our own time, we begin to rely on our own works instead of the works of God. And we engage in things like manipulation and intimidation and guilt and slander and deception. And we begin to act impulsively, as Moses did, rather than prayerfully. And we mess things up. And when that happens, we feel the need to cover it up like Moses did. See, Moses looked this way and that, saw that nobody was there. He killed the Egyptian, and then what did he do? He buried him in the sand. But we're not very good at covering up our sin, are we? Moses was found out. I mean, you think about David and Bathsheba. When David had sinned with Bathsheba, after that, he tried over and over and over again to cover up his sin. And the more he tried, the worse it got, the more pain he caused the more negative consequences came as a result, the more people he harmed as he tried to cover up his sin over and over again. Some people might be able to fool some people for a while, but none of us can hide our sin from the all-knowing God. A lot of times now, if we're trying to cover up our sin, it involves some form of lying or deception. And I'm always telling my children that lying always makes things worse. Think about Ananias and Sapphira as the church was growing and they lied to the Holy Spirit and the Lord and the leaders and they paid for it with their lives. We cannot cover up our sin. The worst thing to do when you have sinned is to try to cover it up, to try to hide it from the Lord. Instead of covering up our sin, we should run to the cross to experience the grace and the forgiveness that God offers us. See, Moses had to learn the wisdom of Proverbs 28:13 where it says he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper but whoever confesses and forsakes them finds mercy I guess if we were to look at it theologically we could sum up the sin of Moses by saying that he was trying to save God's people through his own works and his own power rather than trusting God to save them through his power and his grace. But God proved that this was not the right way by sending Moses to live in the wilderness for 40 years before he gave him another chance. God wanted to make sure that his people were saved for his own glory. 
And when, when salvation finally came, it would not be through the strength of any man, but it would be through the power of God alone. And that is absolutely true regarding our salvation in Jesus Christ as well. We are not saved by anything that we say or do. We are not saved by our family connections. We are not saved by being a member of a church. We are not saved by attending Sunday evening service and braving the snow to get here. We are not saved by even being involved in the cause of justice as Moses was doing here. Salvation is all of God. And thus it is all of grace, and it is all for his glory alone. That's why we sang those two hymns in the middle, to focus on the grace of God. Listen again to some of the words from the first one. Not what my hands have done. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers or sighs or tears can bear my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. No other work save thine, no other blood will do. No strength save that which is divine can bear me safely through. Salvation is a gift of God. It is all of his power. It is all for his glory. The sin of Moses was that he took matters into his own hands He put himself in the place of God and he tried to speed along the plan of God's salvation through sinful means. Whenever we do that, it leads to disaster. It led to disaster for Moses in several different ways. Now, first of all, it was disastrous for the Egyptian. He lost his life. But not only that, it, it led to broken relationships between Moses and his fellow Hebrews. The next day, Moses goes out And he sees two Hebrews fighting with each other. And he says to the one, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man responds, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me like you killed the Egyptian? Moses' leadership here is rejected. He wants to be the hero. He wants to bring rescue and deliverance. But the people won't have it. They reject him. He's taken matters into his own hands through sinful means... And now it's led to a broken relationship between him and his fellow people. Not only that, but now he's lost his position as the prince of Egypt. Pharaoh finds out about it and he wants to kill Moses. And so now Moses is on the flight. He's fleeing for his life. He has to leave Egypt. When we take matters into our own hands, it leads to disaster. Moses had to spend 40 years in the wilderness. You know, we mess things up. We aren't good at being God. But the great news is, is that God is in the business of restoration. And he is a master at it. He can make things whole again. He can make things beautiful again. And we don't stop with the sin of Moses. But we look next to the school of grace at Midian. And I think the school of grace is a place that we all need to be. 
at many times in our lives. The amazing thing here is that Moses is fleeing for his life. And right away, Moses gets another chance, in a sense. He gets what I like to call a do-over. It's kind of like a mulligan in golf. I don't know if any of you are golfers. But a mulligan in golf is when you make a bad shot and you get to do it again. It's like it doesn't even count. When I was a kid, we called it a do-over. When we're playing a game with our friends, somebody gets out or somebody doesn't hit it very well. We're like, okay, no, no, let's do a do-over. And it was the best thing as a kid, best thing ever, because it's like it didn't even happen. And you got another chance to make it right or to do better. So Moses here gets a do-over, but it's not exactly the one he wants. See, he wants to rescue God's people, but that's not going to come for 40 more years. But Moses gets a smaller one here, much less significant, you could say, in the eyes of the world. But Moses has learned because this time he does it right. It's the right time, and he does it in the right way. He sits down by the well in Midian, and there's a problem here. We have seven daughters of this priest that are coming out trying to water their father's flocks. But as they bring up the water out of the well, apparently there are some shepherds who continue to harass them. And they come, and after the, the daughters have worked hard to bring up this water, they drive them away, and they take the water for themselves. But this time, somebody is there to help them. And it says that Moses came to their rescue. No mention of killing anybody this time. Moses drives them away and rescues these ladies. Not only does he rescue them, but then it says that he watered their flock. He serves them. Egyptians would have looked down on shepherds and women. Moses would have been brought up with that attitude, or at least taught that. He may not have accepted it. And we see here that he responded in the right way and in the right time. This time he's doing things God's way. He's showing that the heart of a leader is one that serves others. And Jesus Christ is a perfect example of this for us. Not only did he wash the disciples' feet, but he gave his very life for us. One of the most amazing verses in the Bible, as far as I'm concerned, is Matthew 20, 28, where it says, For even the Son of Man, even Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords, even our God who made us, even he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If anybody ever deserved to be served, it was Jesus Christ. He is our God and King. He made us, and yet he humbled himself, and he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for us. This is a lesson that Moses was learning. Moses would learn many other lessons as well in the School of Grace at Midian. He had a long time to learn, 40 years But several things that he learned were preparing him for the second chance that God would give him later on with the Israelites. See, Moses spent a lot of time in the wilderness in solitude, time with his God, time to enjoy that fellowship and grow in his relationship with him. He learned the ways of a shepherd, which would come in handy as he tried to shepherd God's people and lead them out of Egypt. His time in the wilderness also helped him be familiar with with the wilderness 
which he would also spend much more time in the wilderness after he led the people out of Egypt. So God was preparing Moses. Midian had become his home, his refuge, and his training ground. But again, it wasn't necessarily the school that Moses wanted to get into. It wasn't his first choice. In fact, it probably wasn't even on his list of choices. But that's where God put him. And there Moses learned that a leader is faithful in the little things. Matthew Henry points out that Moses shows us here that when we cannot do the good that we would, we must be ready to do the good that we can. If you can't do the good you want to do, at least do the good that you can do. Another way to say it, I saw this on a church sign nearby. It said, do what you can with what you have where you are. Do what you can with what you have where you are. You know, maybe you had big plans for your life, grand dreams of how you were going to serve God or what you were going to do, and maybe they haven't worked out for you the way you wanted them to. Maybe you wanted to be a writer, publish books, and that just hasn't worked out. But would you write for the church newsletter? Maybe you wanted to be a great teacher, teach in a seminary, or be a professor, and maybe that hasn't worked out. But would you teach a Sunday school class? Maybe you wanted to be a missionary and take the gospel to people who have never heard it before, and it just hasn't happened. But will you share the gospel with people God puts in front of you every day? Would you be willing to start a Bible study in your own home or neighborhood? Perhaps you have great compassion for the oppressed children of the world and you long to relieve their burdens and you may be distraught over the little that you can do. Maybe you can't help all the children, but you can help the ones in your own neighborhood. Perhaps there's a girl without a father or mother and you could intervene in their life and point them to Christ. There are plenty of opportunities in this church and in this community for us to be faithful in the little things, to serve God where he's called us to serve him. Short-term mission trips, Transitional Living Center, Clare House, coaching, tutoring, serving, all kinds of opportunities for us to be faithful in the little things. You know, we might not be where we want to be. We might not be doing what we want to be doing but we can learn to trust God's timing, to rest in his grace, and to be faithful in doing what we can. We might never get the chance to be a famous superhero. Our, our name may never be well known. We may not impact a multitude of people. We may never be used to do something as great as lead God's people out of Egypt. But even if our name is not Moses, God still has a plan for us. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. See, not only has God prepared good works for us to do, but he's preparing us to do them. And he does this through the ordinary experiences of our everyday life. God in his grace even uses our mistakes to train us and to be used for his glory, even the kind that put us in the wilderness for 40 years. God can turn them around for his glory. James Boyce, the late pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, said this, 
God can teach us through the failure of our own plans that he is capable of working for us and in us in spite of us. Only after we fail do we become aware that it is God and not ourselves who is working. And that leads us to the salvation of God. The good news at the end of chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. We've seen Moses' mistake. Took matters into his own hands. Didn't follow God's way. Didn't follow God's time. Had to spend 40 years in the wilderness. But those 40 years, he was experiencing the grace of God. Being trained and equipped to release the Israelites from bondage when it was God's time. And in God's way. And now, we get kind of a foreshadowing of what's to come. Verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. God is setting the stage for the rescue, the deliverance that he would bring. And in those few verses there, we notice four things about God. First of all, our God is a God who hears. The Israelites cried out to God and he heard them. It says that their groanings went up to God. That word groanings makes me think about what little children will often do. If you've ever had a child, you've probably experienced this at some point in their lives. When children are little, it seems like they're getting hurt in some way almost every day. Tripping over themselves, running into things, not watching where they're going. And sometimes they'll get hurt so badly that they'll come sobbing to you. The tears are streaming down their faces and they're crying and crying. And they come, they want to be held and comforted. And as you're holding them, they try to explain to you what has happened. And as they're trying to talk, their words are just swallowed up by their tears and their sobs. And it's all gibberish. It makes no sense. You cannot understand a word that they're saying. They're just groaning out to you. And God says that he hears us in our groanings. When our pain is so deep that we can't even put it into words, God hears and he understands and he knows Our God is a God who hears. In Genesis 16, you know, we see another example of somebody who took matters into their own hands. Abraham and Sarah. God had promised Abraham that he would have a son, that all nations of the world would be blessed through him, but no son yet. They're getting impatient. And so Sarah gives Abraham Hagar, her maidservant, and she conceives with Abraham. But now... It's not the way God wanted it to be done, and it leads to some confusion, some hard feelings. Sarah and Hagar aren't so happy with each other in this moment. And so Sarah sends Hagar away, and Hagar is distraught, upset, discouraged, downcast. But the Lord visits her in her pain, and he comes to her, and the angel of the Lord says to her, Behold, you're pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael which means God hears because the Lord has listened to your affliction. In Jeremiah 33, we're told that the Lord says this, Thus says the Lord who made the earth, 
the Lord who formed it to establish it. The Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. Here God is saying, look at me. Take your eyes off your problems and look at me, who I am. I am the Lord who made the heaven and earth. I am the Lord who made you and I hear you and will answer you. You know, we never have to ask that question, can you hear me now, of God. Wherever we are, whatever our pain or sorrow, God hears. And in our time of need, in our suffering, in our pain, in our affliction, whether it's something great or something little, we can cry out to God and know that he hears and he listens and he answers. Well, not only does God hear us, But God remembers his covenant. And this is amazing. This is a mighty work of grace. For it's not our sins that God remembers. It says he remembers his covenant. It could have read something like this. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning. And he remembered that Moses had murdered the Egyptian and tried to cover it up. So God wiped them off the face of the earth. Why doesn't it say that? Or it could have said God heard their groaning and he remembered that the Israelites were wicked people, always complaining and rebelling against him, so he sent fire from heaven and destroyed them. Has every right to read that way. In fact, it ought to read that way. It ought to read that way for every one of us. But the amazing thing is, it does not. It says God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant. His promise of love and life. He remembered his covenant of love with his people. His eternal promise that he would be their God and they would be his people. It's the promise that God gave to Eve right after the fall. Immediately he gives this great promise that rescue would come, deliverance would come, Christ the Messiah would come, her offspring would crush Satan and his evil works. It's a promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 15 when he said that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And in fact, one of the things that God promised when he made this covenant with with Abraham had to deal with this exact situation. He promised he would deliver Abraham's descendants. Genesis 15, 13, and 14 read this. The Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. See, even if God's people had forgotten, God remembered. The Israelites' deliverance is certain, because what is at stake here is God's character. And he is zealous for his glory. The God who made this covenant with the patriarchs is the same God who's about to lead his people out of Egypt. This God is also the same God who sent Jesus to be our Savior, to rescue us from our bondage to sin and death. And he did it because he remembered his promise, his covenant. God remembers and keeps his promises, every single one of them, because it's about his character and his glory. And God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. 
Has he spoken and will he not do it? Has he said and will he not fulfill it? The the Almighty God has pledged his word and he will do it. He will remember. He will work for his glory and for the good of those who love him. He remembers his covenant. God hears. God remembers. And third thing we see about God here is that he sees. He sees. God looked on the Israelites. He saw the sons of Israel, it says in the Hebrew. Hagar, when God had promised to bless her and her child Ishmael, her response was this in Genesis 16. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. When God sees, he sees in a way that he understands. And he's filled with compassion. He enters into our world and he feels what we feel. You know, it's amazing how many times the Gospels mention Jesus looking at someone or seeing someone. Some 40 times. I encourage you next time as you're reading through the Gospels to take note of all the times when it speaks of Jesus looking at people or seeing people. And think about what that's saying about Christ and how it affects the way that he has compassion on people, the way he loves them. Just a couple. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He saw their need. He saw their heart. When the rich young man came to Christ and asked him, what must I do to be saved? And Christ talks to him about it, and the rich young man goes away, turns from Christ, rejects Christ, because his riches are great. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. God saw the Israelites. He stopped. He looked. He listened. He took note of their condition. He took note of their need. And when God sees, he loves. Like the father of the prodigal son, scanning the horizon, watching, looking, hoping for his son to return. God is looking at us. He sees us. And when he sees us, he runs to us. And he wraps his arms around us and an embrace of love, welcoming us home. God hears, God remembers, God sees, and finally, God knows. In the NIV, it says that God looked at the Israelites and was concerned about him. But what the Hebrew Scriptures actually say is that God knew his people, that God saw and God knew. He knew all about them. And the word suggests an intimate, personal acquaintance with all, their, with all the particulars of their suffering. It suggests that the God of the covenant, the God who sees and hears and remembers, is the God who knows our situation and all its desperate need. And not only does he know, but he has promised to respond. might not always be in the way that we hope or the way that we want, <clears throat> might not always be when we want it or the time that we think it should be done, but it will always be in a way that brings glory to our great God. And that is the number one concern 
of the hearts of those who know and love him. When Moses tried to save the people on his own, he failed miserably. He jumped over the railing when he couldn't fly, and it led to disaster. But when Moses was called by God, when God came to Moses in chapter 3 in the burning bush, and he said that he, God, was going to save the people and bring deliverance, nothing could stop it. Not even the power of the Egyptian army, for they were brought to nothing. At the end of that first session at the fall retreat, I showed the rest of that clip. I didn't leave the boy hanging there in midair. Show the clip. Superman comes and saves the day, flies down, catches the boy, and brings him back to safety. And this is what's about to happen for the Israelites. And it's, what has, and, it, and it's the same thing that God has provided for us through his son, Jesus Christ. Like the boy plummeting down Niagara Falls, like the Israelites enslaved in Egypt, every one of us needs to be rescued. The great news is God has provided for our rescue. Our only hope is that our sin will also be followed up by the school of grace, that our sin will be surrounded by and engulfed in and drowned in the grace of God, and that this grace will lead to salvation. I pray that it would be true for you, as it was true for Moses, that you would rest and the God of your salvation, and your great covenant-keeping God. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Father, we do not deserve your mercy or grace or rescue, but we thank you that even when we go our own way, even when we take matters into our own hands, when we turn to the cross, You welcome us back with grace and forgiveness. We pray that we would learn to walk in your ways, to be faithful to you, our great faithful God. And we thank you that when we are not, you remain faithful. For you are a God who does not change, whose love can never fail. We love you, Lord, and thank you for your love for us. We pray these things in the mighty matchless name of our risen Savior and Lord, our great Redeemer and Deliverer, Jesus Christ. Amen.